From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 183 of the Killing It podcast so hey gents let's kick off with some fun what is the best wi-fi name you've seen in your entire life i'm going to change the question so i my wi-fi name which i just love because i just i just think it's funny is i always have nsa mobile and then a number so that's that's my on my phone that's on my uh t-mobile uh mi-fi device I just want people to think the NSA is uh, is making their network available. See, well, see, mine mine goes to the other side of that, right? The best one, and I will legitimately say this was a brother-in-law that actually did this one, named his FBI surveillance van, and um, and when I first saw it, I was like, "Teehee, that's funny," and I appreciate the sense of humor. It's freaking remarkable how many people around the neighborhood. Did you guys see that network come through? Buzz, buzz, buzz. And it had like a it had a hysterical level of intended effect. I was like, you know, ordinarily those jokes don't actually work, but this one did. I just know that people are in their backyards looking for a friend's Wi-Fi and finding my thing that says NSA Mobile 8, you know? <laughs> Which, and I mean, uh, again, who among us hasn't actually just searched the neighborhood for some free Wi-Fi? But mine is mine is super simple, nacho Wi-Fi. That's the best one I've ever seen. Nacho Wi-Fi. When we moved into this neighborhood, which is like six, almost seven years ago, uh, my daughter literally sat in the backyard, you know, in the brand new house, and uh, was said looking for Wi-Fi, and she's like. There's nobody with a Wi-Fi signal. Like you've moved into a neighborhood where everybody turns their their routers off at night. <laughs> like oh well. Which again, for a different discussion and on a different date, the, this begs the question of, what are we all going to do when everybody actually does lock down and secure their Wi-Fi signal? That's going to really cause some hamstring on the way that regular modern life happens. I look forward to the actual secure future. Let's <laughs> not. <laughs> I look There's forward no, to no that. No downside to a secure future? No, it's all fine. I've, I'm fine with that. Bring it on, please. <laughs> well, are you a member of the National Society of IT Service Providers? If you're within the sound of my voice, you should be. The NSITSP is dedicated to promoting professionalism in all IT services and improving our industry's reputation to your clients, the government, and the media. Our industry faces challenges from ransomware, the insurance industry, government regulators, and bagged actors from within. Join the NSITSP and help us improve our industry and our reputation. Visit NSITSP.org and join today. I highly endorse that. So... Uh, our first topic, we have some fun topics today. Our first topic is um, about exchange traded funds, which doesn't sound like it's really a hard, you know, a direct hit for our audience, but it is. The, the exchange traded funds that I'm talking about are called Nance and Cruise. Nance tracks the investments of Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in Congress, and Cruise 
tracks the Republicans in Congress, including Ted Cruz. And basically the idea is these are actual funds you can invest in that are pretty much guaranteed to outperform the market because of the information available to members of Congress that you and I don't have information on. So think about if you, if you were an investor, obviously uh, work for an investment company, you can't do insider trading. If you're one of the companies on Wall Street, you can't do insider trading. If you're a reporter on this, you can't do insider trading. But if you're a member of Congress, you magically can choose what your investments go to and uh, shockingly outperform the market. Uh, I think tell me again, tell me again why not lawmakers should be allowed to do this. Somebody, please. Maybe perhaps because they write the laws. Like, come on. We'd all see this. <laughs> it is the ultimate example of, you know, you cannot regulate yourself. You, it's, it's not possible. And I don't see how this will ever come to an end. I, well, I will say I love that they're going to build tracking funds for it because if there is any potential for shame, it is literally that the, like we are going to show how you are outperforming the market through manipulation. And then the rest of us are going to get advantage. It's either exposure or advantage to it and either destroy the advantage because if everyone's doing the same thing, the longer the, the math doesn't work or there will at least be hopefully some level of shame, not, all politicians have reached a pure level of shamelessness. And so there we, I'm hopeful that actually this goes the full way. <laughs> We're saying, yeah, build the funds, show it, expose it, and, and let's take it all the way to its logical extreme. See, and in a world where local news media is just literally evaporating and we don't have either... A, the business entities anymore, or B, the investment in human resources needed to cover these kinds of stories. Uh, I still believe that the old axiom of, you know, the best disinfectant is sunshine. Um, as we speak about uncovering the things that go on behind the scenes, this is a really good example of a digital version of that principle. And it goes in the same line of the kid who tracked Elon Musk's airplane and then the, uh, the, the individual resources that you can find out there to track what's going on with government entities and resources and things like this. And there, if you are the subject of these kinds of tracking things, you get very high and mighty about privacy and my individual right to operate. It's funny how it's always the people who are abusing the systems who get really upset when they are tracked abusing the systems. I think this one is a particularly effective and efficient model. I'm, I'm, tempted to say that there's just enough people in the meme stock world who who do these things instantaneously that the the advantage in their funds ought to disappear very very quickly right if that's not true then we're just not doing it correctly we're not using the information for its intended purposes i'm not suggesting you go invest in one of these two funds in order to make extra money i'm saying all the meme stalkers in the world should jump on this information and evaporate their advantage as quickly as possible because that's the only way. I don't think shame's going to be the mechanism to change the lawmaker's behavior. I think it's going to be 
well, damn it, I used to be able to make money on my inside information and now I can't because the world replicates my strategy as quickly as I put it out there. Well, so now maybe since there's no advantage, we will make the symbolic gesture of saying, well, we won't do that anymore because it's the right thing to do. No, it's not. The, the whole thing about having everybody have the same amount of knowledge is exactly why insider trading is not allowed. So the interesting thing for me is going to be, okay, so what happens when reporters say, okay, this actually does track the behavior of, of the people in Congress and then say, okay, so why did they put that money into, let's just say General Motors or Ford or whatever? Like, what do they know that we don't? And then go follow that because they also, you know, a lot of members of Congress have access both on the floor and in committees to things that, yeah, theoretically it's in the record, but there's a lot of knowledge that never makes its way into the record. And so uh, I, I think, like you said, you know, the, the, the disinfectant of light goes a long ways. <laughs> but I also think that this is, this is something representative of what we're going to see more of that there, here's a surrogate measure that we can use metadata to create uh, an indication of how something is going without actually having access to that something. And that's, I mean, that's our future. We're gonna see a lot more of this kind of thing. See, and this is the thing, right? Recently, I was reading a study about, uh, it, it's, it's a metadata study that, take, that takes hundreds of other studies on a topic, pulls their data, and then reanalyzes them to identify if there are trends without actually analyzing the sub-study that was going on. Uh, it's a, not a recent phenomenon, but it's been an accelerating phenomenon in the world of academic research, pharmaceutical research, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the one that I was reading was based on uh, the fact that if you drink more than two cups of green or black tea a day, that it will give you a 17% reduction in your likelihood of developing type 2 diabetes. And I was like, hey, both of my parents had that. I'm interested. And I thought it was fascinating. But my takeaway from it was just how much knowledge you can gain just by following the aftermath or the wake of the data in these things, you can learn an awful lot. You don't have to disclose the sub questions. You don't have to identify the participants. You can just take the metadata and figure out which way the wind is blowing. I think this is, this is high time for us to have a philosophical as well as a as well as a tactical conversation it's hella wrong that lawmakers are able to make policy and trade on the policy that they're about to make that's just not cool but this is the kind of technology that should be able to eliminate that because uh, I'm thinking if you're not investing in these funds, you can at least go track what they did and say, okay, now I'm going to correlate it to the next session's agenda and see if you actually submitted legislation on the things you put your money behind. And then that ought to become the content well, of the campaign. So it's the, it's the data exposure. It's the exposure of the fact that I think is important. And I'm going to use that to actually pivot into the next one because it's what's so interesting about the U.S. system and the level of transparency that we impose across our lawmakers because it's come to light that lo and behold, the Pentagon has been doing some psyops on social media. Uh, 
shocking everybody. The Washington Post, but the Washington Post has been ordered has ordered a sweeping audit of the way it conducts clandestine information warfare after major social media companies identified and took offline fake accounts suspected to be run by the U.S. military. That's and see, I I throw that out there going. Well, of course they are. It's a great, it's a great read. Uh, we talk theoretically about the, the threats from other countries, but of course our own agencies are using those tools themselves. The key difference that I want to highlight here is, is the well, our system has exposure of this, uh, both commercially and from a government oversight perspective. So from my mind, there's a certain degree of, yeah, everything is happening the way it's supposed to. The companies are reporting it. The Pentagon has then ordered, has ordered its own audit and has to disclose to its oversight. Uh, funny the parallels to our previous story. But, gents, you know, what, what's, what's your take here? I mean, it, what, what's, the, what's the downside? Is the U.S. holding itself to higher standards? When you saw this, what did you think? So can I check all of the above? <laughs> so, yes, you can. <laughs> you know, the, the thing about this is if you think about it, you did know that this was happening. You had to have known that this was happening. I remember in 2012, uh, during that a particular election season, somebody posted something on Facebook and I sent him a note and said, you realize the government is watching. Like this is not, you know, paranoid BS. Like it is actually happening. And if you don't think it's happening, you are fooling yourself. Um, at some level, I want the government to be watching this. I want to know if somebody is making threats that could lead to a school shooting. I want to know if the Russians are meddling in our elections. I, you know, there's a lot of stuff I want to know. You don't get that knowledge without having somebody from the government uh, gathering that data, whether it's actual listening or metadata. In this case, the creation of accounts, it's sort of like, eh, can this same government hold Facebook accountable or Twitter or anybody else for lots of fake accounts when they're creating many of them themselves. Well, I'll push back. I'll push back, though, because because they're playing to a certain degree by the organization's rules. The organization, which we know Twitter has a debatable number of 5% of spam bots, right? That is literally part of their business plan. Uh, they're playing by the rules, quote unquote, the rules, such as, such as they are. Why wouldn't they do that? And you can't expect every, everybody to unilaterally disarm on one side when, you're, when the rules of the game are played everywhere. So I, I, I think it's a... And, and that's exactly where I think the conversation goes, right? The difference between offensive and defensive cyber warfare. When the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, we had a conversation on this program about how long did we think it would take until we could really see the effect of Russian-sponsored cyber warfare in that conflict. And then a couple of months later, we actually came back and said, well, we are surprised at how little effect it was having. And we were kind of scratching our heads like, wait a minute, are the Russians just not doing it? Are they not trying as hard? Is there some defensive mechanism? And at that point, we wondered aloud, did our own country have the same kind of offensive capability? I think if you add one plus two, you get three in this situation. 
Yes, they are trying it on both sides. But Dave, I think you used exactly the right metaphor. You can't unilaterally disarm in a warfare scenario. It's why we have mutually assured destruction in the nuclear theater. It's why we have spies on both sides. It's why as much as we will decry corporate espionage in China, we do the same stinking thing on this side. Is it right or wrong? That's not the question. Is it mutually effective? And can you use the knowledge you gain on the offensive side to build better defenses? I think that's exactly what we're observing. And again, you might, we might come back in a couple of months and go, well, that was kind of naive. And we, we needed to learn a little bit more based on the disclosures. But I, I have to theorize at this point that the only way to play good defense in a cybersecurity, cyber warfare world is to have practiced cyber offense to see what works and what doesn't work to get yourself into the mindset there and then build the defenses. What I'm hearing is an assumption that, that they're on the side of good and they're only using this for good <laughs> purposes. I don't know that that assumption holds true. You know, if you get a list of these accounts, what are they doing? Are they just listening? Are they participating? Are they prodding people to behavior? Is that something that we want the military? Yeah, no, no. See, that, that, I think you're correct on that assumption. I will go so far as to say I'm not wondering whether we are doing bad things. I'm saying by assumption that we are doing bad things. I think that our government has offensive capabilities in psychological warfare via social media, and they are using that to steer opinion. Now, I believe that it's defensible to the extent that it helps, A, keep the bad guys in check, assuming that we're the good guys, and that, B, it helps them learn more effective defensive techniques but I am nowhere near naive enough to believe that we're just listening. I, I don't buy that for a hot second. I believe that they are, that the government in various entities is practicing aggressive offensive cyber warfare and they're using it to affect things that the government wants to affect. I am I'm not going to get into theorizing who has their finger on that button and whether or not they're using it for good or for evil. But I'm just saying it's out there. I guarantee it's out there. Well, I mean, look, from, from my perspective, the what I want is proper oversight and management by elected officials. Like I will, I'll just, I'll go forth and say like the, 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 the key to the American system is that we, we have imposed that and it is civilians managing this, particularly when I'm looking at it from a military perspective, from a government perspective. I also want government agencies oversighted by over having done oversight. I would Im encourage more of us to recognize that our elected leader's job is oversight and they should you should be measuring based on what their oversight is not what they're spewing not what they're, they're no, but their actual actions to do oversight over agencies it, it, you've got to to have that piece now i do generally also say that i have a general belief that most in government are doing things for public service reasons. You could go do better in private sector <laughs> financially. So many of them are in that industry because they want to do public service. But at the same time, that's why we have a system that requires that. 
And we need to be good at that because in many cases, those on the other side, as we see both in cybersecurity and we see in diplomacy here, are less motivated by altruistic, positive, uh, you know, positive thinking. We need to be better at this because we're imposing that level of transparency that we And want. I think the, the, the oversight needs to be in different layers, right? Because to the extent that they're poking Putin with a stick, I pretty much don't care. Like, keep poking, you know? But if they are engaging in behavior that actually affects the internal operations of organizations inside the United States of America and people who have the free right to assemble, whether you agree with them or not, that might be a very different story. And so I just, I would like to see a lot more oversight from these people doing inciting trading. <laughs> about you know what's going on inside the US. Dave, you should write down on your calendar uh, a, an observation of today was the day that Carl agreed with you that we need more government oversight. Oh, we don't have Just go on to the next topic. <laughs> this is a historic day, everybody. We really need to write this one down. because <laughs> <laughs> can shift over time. That's next all topic. I'm saying. Next topic. I'm saying, right? But we're going to move into our third topic here. And again, catnip for some of the hosts on these. Sometimes we get to cover stories that we think are super cool. We're going to link in the show notes to an article that just gives us a flash into some news items. Uh, conferences are happening today. Uh, one of the conferences that's happening is is Dreamforce, and everybody's descending on San Francisco and 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 mobbing the city in the way of the good old days. Uh, um, but Nvidia is doing their conference entirely digitally because uh, that's what they do, and what they're selling is dot dot dot. Uh, the metaverse as a service. Now, what, what I will observe here is the three of us still don't think the metaverse is actually real. So it's kind of extra meta when you get to go and do it uh, in as a service. So uh, we, we will reserve judgment on the substance of this. But when you get inside the architecture of it, it's basically a service that allows you to assemble all of the very hefty and complicated processing technologies that are necessary to create remote 3D immersive environments and saying, don't you build that into your own data center, just subscribe to that from us as a service. So uh, A, it's coming whether or not we thought it was necessary and B, it will bring to the world what I believe to be the, the very important development of it will democratize the access to the concept of the digital twin. You don't have to have supercomputers to be able to do this now. You just need to have a strategy around it. So I put the world of the metaverse as a service and digital twin as a service into your hands and say, gentlemen, how excited are you about this development? So Dave and I have tried desperately to never use the term digital <laughs> twins, and it just keeps coming up. Uh, I will point out just one kind of humorous note that if you if you read the article that we posted, it starts out with uh, an embedded acronym. So GPU, Graphic Processor Unit, uh, Technology Conference becomes GTC. So we just have the G for GPU goes inside of GTC. So that's there their GPU technology conference. The cool thing is when you get to the part of this article that actually talks about digital twins, 
being able to replicate a, a maintenance or a production facility in another country almost instantaneously is pretty cool to the extent that it actually is useful. So I'm not saying the, the uh, omniverse or the metaverse doesn't exist, but man, it's way different than putting on a set of goggles. The omniverse does not exist. I will say that is, that is a made up thing that they're trying like oh you do in the metaverse i'm gonna do bigger mine's an omniverse like <laughs> like like you know connectiverse my, exactly an ecto magnoverse like i mean come on like there's a there's, there's a particularly when you're when you're one-upping a term that's not even well defined i'm just gonna call ridiculousness here <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and they're, you know, and they're, I mean, the headline, you have to laugh and go, you didn't ask for it. Yes, you're exactly right. I did not ask for this. Uh, you know, you're, you're throwing terms at it. And, and so I, I got to push back industry. Like you, you can't just do this kind of stuff. Now, do I believe there are examples of simulations where digital twins make sense and can drive value? Yes. I will totally go on board and Ryan's grinning. Oh, what would like, you call it? Yes. There's a certain degree of like who freaking cares, right? Like some of, some of it is is the you know we we debate terms versus actual value. Oftentimes, I want to you know you could easily call it a simulation that helps us de deliver you know business analysis. It sounds boring, but it's actually a good description of what it's doing. You know, they, what, what's happening here is, is we're getting all hype trains that, that we think we can sell more of a particular thing and look innovative by calling it something different. And I think that's actually dangerous because it, you know, it's just hype. It's just marketing noise. And sure, every salesperson will go, well, I need that to drive. No, business value will win over long term when you can show something is interesting. It doesn't have to be this cool ass name. <laughs> what what if your what if your simulation isn't fully buzzword compliant? <laughs> See, then it then it all collapses in on itself and it creates a virtual black hole into which all of the marketing hype will be sucked, right? Um, I, I will say this is an interesting development in the very tangible sense that it puts a use case to the concept of the metaverse that is legitimately producing business value, right? Fast forward on that concept and what I think we're learning here is that the concept of the metaverse will not be so much a video game slash entertainment medium, but as it will be a business environment for A, simulating concepts and new product design, B, performing remote service and, uh, and maintenance on systems from, uh, from a very physically remote world, and then C, providing customer service slash CX customer experience in a more immersive way. See, I can look at this and say, I don't buy the legless avatar application of we're just going to recreate a multi-dimensional version of Facebook and now you can have social media with immersive qualities. I don't buy that that's the use case. I think that the business application of these technologies will actually provide meaningful value. And, and as you said, Carl, this is just one use case example where you can say, hey, listen, I'm trying to design a better motor 
And I can do that by A, designing it, B, manufacturing it, C, melting it down in a testing environment, and then saying, what did we learn from that and how can we do it better? Or I can just virtualize that entire process and do it over and over and over again, such that I come out with thousands of iterations that produce eventually a radically more effective physical product. That is a perfect application for this. But Dave, just to just to ping your stress meter on the terminology here a little bit, by definition, that's not just a simulation. That's a simulation that's built on interactivity and immersiveness that must be compatible across multiple dependent and participating networks and systems, which is just really geeky way of saying it's not just the metaverse. It is the omniverse. And, oh, and that's dramatically sure. accurate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so fair enough. I mean, but but my point here is is that you know we we almost want to have like the two levels of terms. Like there there's an important definition that you've just said said okay, an omniverse must do these things by the way you just defined it. But that's not the way this is positioned, right? Like when you look at it from this from my take is is like well there there it almost feels like one upsmanship of just trying to up a a, a hype trend for for hype's reasons. I, I would bring this back to the real world, uh, the, 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 the universe, <laughs> for just a second. <laughs> you know, we reported that the initial production of the GPU service by NVIDIA and also by Microsoft three years ago. And now we're actually seeing where that is taking us, which is the ability to have massively complex computing power available to anyone who's willing to sign up and pay a nickel or several nickels and uh, and be able to use it. And this is the beginning of some really super cool stuff. And we may not be at a hologram today, but we're definitely heading in that direction. In that oh, I'm direction. Big on holog I am big on holograms and you know, sort of end with the like, I want to visualize a world that's more AR than VR. There you go. And with that. that, we conclude episode 183 of the Killing It podcast thanks for tuning in to the killing it podcast please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on itunes stitcher and all the podcast places join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business